Marguerite Poland doesn't write a book lightly. The multi-award winning author, recipient of the Silver Order of Ikamanga and Sala Lifetime Achiever, takes her books and her characters very, very seriously. Perhaps never more so than with her latest book, it's called A Sin of a Mission, in which she tracks the journey of young missionary Stephen or Malusi Mzamani from rural South Africa to Missionary College in Canterbury and back again in the late 1800s. It's based on a story that she heard long, long ago from her great uncle, all about a young man at his mission station. And it's a story that stayed with her, just as seemingly has the spirit of Stephen himself. She describes the writing of the book as the journey of a lifetime. And just recently comes wonderful news that A Sin of a Mission has been shortlisted for the prestigious Walter Scott Prize for Historical Fiction 2020, richly deserving. Well, I spoke to Marguerite at the Women's Library in Cape Town last year, soon after the book was published, to find out more about its origins. My great-uncle was a wonderful African linguist because he'd been brought up on St Matthew's Mission, Kaiskarmahok, by his grandparents, and all his playmates were the local children, and he went to the local school, so of course it was, in a way, his first language. And when I was about oh, between the ages of 9 and 14, I very often visited him. And I just loved him so much. He was just a wonderful, wonderful man. And he said to me, and I mean, this is such a long time ago, so it was certainly not fashionable to think like this. He said to me, if you ever do anything in your life, you must learn an African language, he said, because you cannot know your fellow South Africans if you don't. And I took that to heart um, because of the stories he told me as well about the mission station. And he told me a particular story about a child that um, his, great, uh, that his grandfather had taken into the mission, who had been starving, and then he sent him out for, for an education because he was a really bright young man. And he told me the story of what happened to him. Now, at 14, you don't understand the nuances, you don't understand the sort of um, political background of things like that at all. It just was a poignant story, uh, an incredible story, and it lodged in my head. And it just stayed there. And I, I can't even say how many years later, I rediscovered him. And this is how it happened. I was doing a project for um, St. Andrew's College in Grahamstown, and I had to go into the history of the black school that was attached to the college because it was a missionary endeavor, and the bishop's first priority was, in fact, to, besides spread the gospel, was to um, educate the, uh, the children of the indigenous people as well as colonial white boys. And in doing that research, I came across um, a lot of these young black men who had been educated at the Anglican institution. And I was going through research material at Rhodes University in their um, library for the humanities, and I came across a document that had been written by one of the priests in Grahamstown in the 1880s, 1890s, listing all the clergy of the Anglican church and often writing about just in his, it was handwritten, you know, what had happened to them. And I came across this particular name, and there was a remark next to it. And I, when I saw that, I thought, I, I know the story. This is who great uncle told me about. And so, because I'd never had a name, and so I started to be aware of the name, and then I started to do research. and. Um, I, I, I must say here that Professor Andre Udendahl's work and Professor Janet Hodgson's work on the young Corsair elite who were the 
the forerunners of the different political movements and of the ANC um, was incredibly important and hugely significant in, in finding my characters. And in doing that, um, I, I, I found him. And then we happened to go to England for for uh, for a function, and we were with a friend and who came from Grahamstown, and we said, "Did he know um, the missionary college at St Augustine's, which is now a school? Uh, it's an English public school for boys." And he said, "Oh, I know one of the housemasters there." And so we went to um, we went to St Augustine's in Canterbury, and. He took us into this little crypt chapel, which was now full of chairs and old pianos and things like that, no longer used. But the walls are made of stone, and the names of all those young men who had been trained as missionaries there and had gone out around the world for the Anglican Church were carved on the walls and where they'd served. Only those who had died, it was a memorial chapel. So on the walls were written the names of the different parishes and amongst them, Grahamstown. And there I found just just above the floor the name Stephen Nyagama, who is the real person on whom I based my character, sailed, and the date, you know, of 1818, in fact for him it was 1868. And with our friends, we were scrambling around there and found great-grandpa's name behind the piano, also with Graham Stone written on him. So I felt somehow that all the shades were there, and I, I have to believe that that was one of those beacon moments when um, there is some connection in a funny way that is beyond beyond oneself and you know there he was and it was almost as if to say I'm I'm watching it was yeah. it was it was wonderful then can I continue the yes, story because we do. were in England and I knew that there was this exhibition of um, the photographs called black Victorians and you may have heard of it because it's now become actually quite famous but this was you know, quite a number of years ago. And we got on a bus and went right into the east end of London and down an alley and found this little gallery, which was, and the exhibition was beautifully mounted. And I walked in and there was a picture of what they called the Zulu choir, who had gone to England, in fact, a little later than, that's where I've, I've, I've tweaked history slightly as a novelist. Um, and sung before the Queen. They were all people from congregations, they were all highly educated and they were all Christians, but of course they had to do these sort of war dances and things to make it really African. But amongst those faces on the wall was this extraordinarily beautiful face of a woman not looking at you, but looking into a distance with a sort of ineffable serenity and and just, it, she was queenly, she was so beautiful. And I thought, it, there I was in London, and here was this face, and it, it, it just jolted me back home in such an extraordinary way. And so I used that face, um, because I had to imagine Stephen being a student at St. Augustine's in England, this little boy brought from rural, rural Eastern Cape into the magnificence of Canterbury, the magnificence of an English god, which, um, which the god that he was taught about was. And then seeing this face, which just immediately took him home, and he'd lost his mother as well, so it was the, it was the face of, of a woman, and everything that that meant. 
and that's how I found her. It is such an extraordinary story in itself. So I suppose the temptation would have been to, to have the original Stephen Nyankama to, to have written his story, but I believe that there just simply wasn't enough information. However, being the research creature that you are, you then went off on a, on a long research to try and find some pieces. So this is not a biogra biographical story. Mm -hmm. it's, it's based on, just tell us how you made that decision and then where you got all the other ingredients. What I wanted to do was get across um, various ideas about what it would have been like um, in the 1870s, 1880s, in the mission field for a young man, you know, educated like Stephen. So what I did was that the research I did was enormous. It was years and years where I really absorbed the stories of different people in that situation. Most of them knew each other. Um, I mean, the interlinking there was obviously huge because very few of these young people were educated to that level so inevitably they came across each other they knew each other um, they intermarried and that sort of thing and um, in in doing that research small snippets would come up of conversation or a letter that one of them had written and many of that I gave to Stephen but amongst the letters were a great number actually written by Stephen himself so that in describing his mission station in describing the work that happened there and some of the characters that he came across and his difficulties as well you know I haven't given anything to Stephen at the mission station that doesn't actually come out of the research it may not all have always have been his letter. It might have been the person who succeeded him or the person before him. But there's no major incident in the, in the novel either that doesn't come from an actual incident that that I got from the research and, and, and that, you know, grew the plot for me. I'm no genius to be able to just make it all up. It came, it came very much from that. And that, again, was my sense of responsibility in appropriating a story you know, that wasn't mine. As I've said before, otherwise, uh, you know, an elderly woman living in a retirement village with a cat would be the only thing I could ever write about. <laughs> <laughs> well, this could not be further removed from such a novel. So when you talk about Stephen, let's move from the original Stephen mm. to your Stephen, Stephen Malusi Nzamani, mm. who is the most remarkable man. He, he was a foundling. He was found in the bushes. He was taken in by the missionaries. He was educated. And then he was sent to England to, to go to missionary college. But I just have to draw attention to the fact that he had a rather good-looking older brother, mm -hmm. Zamo, mm -hmm. who, um, I'm not sure if nemesis is quite the right word, but t tell us a little bit about Nzamo, because he's the other side of the coin. Yes. Nzamo, his brother, who was the, the older brother, when Stephen was lost, um, he was with Nzamo and they were separated, and Nzamo was able to go home and Stephen was found by the missionary. Um, Mzamo was was very much, uh, I mean, he is a very strong character. He was always, he was the oldest son, so he was the heir. Um, he was more intelligent. He was more, well, supposedly, he, he was more academic. He was more um, sporty. He, he, he was just one of those leaders, charismatic leaders. But what he didn't have, which Stephen did have, was, was vocation. And... I think I've said it somewhere, one of the priests said that Stephen was dependable. 
and Nzamo wasn't. And there was one incident which, it, it doesn't give the plot away, but it's something that came out of the, the actual research. Um, the choir from the Anglican Institution, which was in, I mean, the, you know, the Anglican Institution was in Grahamstown, were asked to go and sing to the farming community at Southwell, which would have been, you know, a, a quite an unusual thing to do. So these chaps had to walk, and it took them a day to walk to Southwell to sing to this congregation of Anglican farmers. And then they had to walk back again. And in fact, their boots wore through. And they staged a protest, which was incredibly unusual thing to do. And that was, I gave that real protest that did happen to Mzamo to say, look, um, you can't treat us like this. And and enough now. And because of that, of course, he was seen as, um, you know, yes. And and he wasn't going to be a reliable priest at all. And uh, they couldn't shut him up. And the other thing is, which was very important, and this is a very important theme in the book. Anybody who went to the Anglican Institution or to Zonnebloom College in Cape Town or to any of those big mission institutions, if they'd been to the bush to be circumcised and to go through um, what was seen as depraved heathen initiation, they weren't allowed to, to go to the colleges. Now, for a young Corsa man not to be circumcised means that forever he is a child in the eyes of his own people. And of course, um, Mzamo says, well, you know, the, the colonists are using this because our people see us as children and they can treat us like children as well. And what happened was that a great number of them were then in this bind of having to marry a, a really Christian girl who would um, overlook the fact that they were not real men or go to a hospital, which they couldn't afford to do, or in fact sneak off to the bush and 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 do what was really important. And one of the young men that Stephen was with was actually heir to the paramount chief. And when he was going to go, when, when he was to succeed his father, they wouldn't accept him because he wasn't a man. And this for Stephen is one of the terrible things because um, he knows that he can never, he can never get married unless he's able to overcome this particular cultural problem. Which is one of, just one of the many problems that he faces. I mean, it is, it, it's one of the causes of his aching loneliness, mm. which um, is, is, many things contribute to his loneliness. But that's one message. Um, there are many messages. It's not a messagey book, but there are many messages in it, not least of which is both the good and the harm that the missionaries mm. did. Um, across the world, but particularly here. Um, and I think you talk about it sort of almost like a conflict between the ancestors and the angels. Yes. Uh, which is heartbreaking because it's damned if you do and damned if you don't. Mm. Just, did you, did you have to leave your own feelings and your own faith behind? How did you deal with that? I've often wondered, um, I've often wondered how the early converts managed to reconcile what was a deeply entrenched, obviously, traditional religion um, to a new way of relating to the world and especially to the afterlife. Um, I think I say it in the book quite often that one young man said, um, well, I've got cattle, I've got land, and I'm enjoying myself, and I've got lots of wives, so why must I worry about the afterlife? Because actually, you know, it's quite good here. So the concept of sin as 
Christians see it is different from the concept of conscience in traditional religion where the approbation of the shades is very important, but it doesn't mean that everything you do heads towards damnation. Whether dancing, singing, feasting on a beast, or whatever it is, it's part of the vibrancy of life. And so much of the Christianity that was taught was so repressive of joy um, and of life. You know, it, it, that, and, and for Stephen, he had to deal with that. Now, for me, um, I come from a long missionary background, but this is not a book about, um, it's not a book about faith in trying to in any way put across a point, but I see a great deal of sense in the idea of, of ancestral, the ancestral legacy, and, and we do too. Um, in you know, say in English culture, it's it's something about who you are, where you come from, and the idea that your shades actually look after you, um, to me, is a deeply comforting idea. And in the writing of this book, I had that immense sense of that old grandpa passed the baton along and said. This story has to be remembered. It's my story, and now it's your story. And there's one slight diversion that I do want to tell you about, because it was, again, one of those synchronicities which brings the sense of the shades to me and also of almost feeling like a conduit for something that is bigger than me. I wrote the book. Of course I did. But it was being aware of something that was that transcended just writing a story, and th this, th this, this is an example of it. I was in the Cory Library and I'd taken out a document, and you have to sign them out in a register. And there are very few people that go in there now, people use the internet instead. And I was signing out my name and I, the word St. Matthew's caught my eye, and just above me somebody had taken out the baptismal register from St. Matthew's. And I said, may I see this document? And they brought it to me, and I went to the 1870s, and here were the baptisms of you know child after child, week after week, and you know some small child of somebody in the community, witnessed by with the godparents, and christened by my great great grandfather and assisted by Stephen Amnyakama. Oh, and more and more and more and more, right through four years were these entries, and sometimes Stephen himself did the baptism. And I just know that, and also from the things that my grandfather has written, that that he had assistant teachers or priests, some of whom were wonderful, and I just know that he sent Stephen to his very first mission station, so he must have had faith in his abilities to take over as the, as the missionary in charge at Nondola. So, Again, in terms of appropriation, I felt that this man and my great-grandfather cared about each other, so I'm allowed to care about him as well. There are so many reasons why you were the ideal person to, to write Stephen's story and, and vindicate him and give him his rightful place mm. in history, but not least of which is the fact that you are very uh, familiar with the Kosa language, which, is, which has given a whole new layer to the book. Well, as I said earlier, my great-uncle said to me the thing that I needed to do was learn it, but when I 
was at university and, and it was a toss-up between doing English or, or Kosa. When I got involved with Kosa and the, the imagery, if you like, um, the idiom, the way words were constructed, but mostly the way the words described the landscape and feelings and things that were so familiar to my world. And it has become, for me, um, I was saying, if I see birds, for example, I don't see them in terms of what their Latin name is or what their breeding habits are. It's, it's more what they mean, how they say it, and um, what their significance is to, to people who live with nature and like young herders of cattle and things like that. They give it, it gives a completely different dimension to the way one sees the world. And um, again, not wanting to appropriate something, but have the, the, the deepest respect for the beauty and the incredible complexity of that language. And it was very important to me that when Stephen was talking to other um, mother tongue speakers, even though he spoke very English, of course, like I do, um, that, that I could indicate that you know what they were saying, and that there are some idiomatic ways of saying things that you just you can't you can't say it in English. It just it doesn't work. You know, his mother says to me, um, it says um, when he goes away. He has gone away with the birds of the sea. And that means that he was taken far beyond anything that was understandable to her in her worldview, in her cosmology, in her experience. And there is nothing left. Um, you know, when he went away to England, because she, she'd never seen the sea. How could she even conceive? It was something so extraordinary and so foreign to which he had, in which he dissolved and could never be found. And in some ways, he was never to be able to find himself again because he was taken away from everything he knew. He was given so much and he came back um, and was given so little mm. and yet he had so much. Um, the, on the cover of the book, there's a, a very significant picture which you can tell me about, but uh, the picture that you paint of his little church, his rather dilapidated little church up there at Ndioba, um, tell me a little bit about that. Is it still standing? Is it oh. just in your imagination or is it still there? In fact, it's the first time it ever appeared on a book cover because I took that photograph. Um, I, about two years ago, I went with, with a friend up into the mountains above Fort Burfitt. And I, I knew that this was Great Grandpa's Church, which as a, a, as a young, young catechist at the age of 19, coming from Nottingham in England, or uh, not Nottingham, Coventry in England, and being sent up there with just a tent to start a mission, which was, again, an unbelievably um, brave and courageous thing to do. And I went there and I met this dear old lady who had this enormous key to open the church door. And I went inside this little church, which was made of uh, originally of wattle and door, but now it's, it's, it's brick. And I went to the altar where the Bible was standing on a, on a stand and looked at the front of it and it said, Holy Trinity Mission Teba, which is my great grandfather's name which they still call that area Teba, 
themselves as a sort of a praise name. And then in the story, there's a part where um, Stephen has, there's a big storm and the, and the windows fall in and he's got to make windows with a sort of a lancet and he doesn't really quite know how to do it. And I just remember that was in a letter that Stephen, the original Stephen, actually wrote, how do I go about making these windows? And I went into the rectory, the little parsonage which is behind the church, which is very derelict now with sort of trees growing out of the window and the roof falling in. And I went alone into the house and uh, in this dark room, which was sort of dappled sunlight coming through the broken roof, lying on the floor, was a little lancet window with a very crooked top to it. And again, somehow that was a message from Stephen that he knew what I was doing. And then interestingly above the windows were pelmets most beautifully carved, which must have been brought in when Grandpa got married. And in fact, my great-grandmother, who was called Marguerite, was born into that house. So for me, it was a sort of an epiphany, one of those wonderful, wonderful moments. Um, another one that said, that I was supposed to do this. And being at that community, I met um, with a woman of the Women's Union, because they, you know, people came to say, what, what were these people doing at the church? And the, um, she told me, that, that the woman who was the head of the Mother's Union, that they were trying to get heritage status for the church. And I said, have you ever heard of Reverend Stephen Mnyagama? And they had no idea. But I mean, understandably, this had all happened in the 1870s, 1880s. And I told her the story. And, and then I wrote them a, a little history of that time. And they have now um, applied for heritage status with, with this incredible story behind their little church in the middle, literally of nowhere, of the, one of their first priests, a young black priest who had been trained in Canterbury in England. Um, so for them, it meant a huge amount. And then Carol Hoffmeyer and her Kaiskama artists um, said that they wanted to do a narrative tapestry of the story, because Carol is a great friend, and I've worked with her before on various projects of theirs. And her artists went up there one day um, and met Mother's Union and women who were doing handwork and showed them their handwork. And in fact, the women at Nonjola, as it is really called, um, had made a maypole with, um, with material on a pole, and they all danced the maypole together. And Carol said it was just an unbelievable juxtaposition, yet again, of the English and, and the very traditional corset somehow was wonderfully Stephen-like, <laughs> you know, because it's something that he would have known about. And now they've made the four narrative tapestries um, of Stephen being found, of Stephen in Canterbury with the beautiful gate of St. Augustine's Missionary College behind him, of Stephen arriving at the mission station on his, on his own to this dilapidated place. And then finally, the final tapestry is now of them dancing the maypole outside the little church. So for me, the fact of being able to inspire that story for people who are part of that culture and whose Stephen's story is part of their story as well, what they have experienced, truly experienced, 
Um, and what those beautiful tapestries have done for my work as well, because they are breathtaking. And when people see pictures of them, they say, you know, what is this? And it's this lovely collaboration that we've done, which just came about serendipitously, like finding Stephen's signature next to Grandpa's in the baptism register. It's an extraordinary story, and how wonderful that you've been able to embody it, bring it to life, make him, make him live all over again, and give him a, a future as well as a history. Um, and the, the book itself is filled with so many incredible characters, too many to mention here, but um, I'm, thinking of, uh, I'm thinking of Albert and Unity mm -hmm. and Lily and Mfundisi Tovi, and there are so many people. I can't help feeling you must have been heartbroken when the book was finished. Well, I was, and I had said to my family, I promise you I'll never write another book because <laughs> all these people come and live in the house with me. I pay a great deal of attention to them and leave everybody else alone. Um, and sort of four or five days later, I thought, what am I going to do? I, I, perhaps I'll have to write a little thing for myself in search of Stephen because it was just such a, a wonderful journey and so full of wonderful wonderful real present people as well. Bruce Howard, who got the material for me from Oxford, um, comes out to South Africa quite regularly. He is a South African and went to Rhodes. Um, he once took back some proteas from here and he went and took a protea to every grave of um, any of the young black men who'd been sent to England who died there, and there were a number because they got consumption, TB, because of the weather. And there were three or four graves in England of, of these young men who, who died very young before they came back home. And he took, he took a protea to each of them. Um, you know, in tradition or course of society, when you want to bring a spirit home, say a mine worker who dies far away from home, you take an empath branch and you, dry, you bring it back home and his spirit comes and then it's a way of, it's a closure for a family as well. But he took the flowers from here just to say that um, we, we remember. And, and that was just such a wonderful gesture. Thank you. It was wonderful to be with you, Nancy. Thank you. Thank you for liking my book. Love it. <laughs>